How we doing? Man, to be in a room with a bunch of hyped up guys. Man, for the right reasons, amen? If you're married here, your wife has told at least how many people today, my husband's at church. My husband's at a, at a men's conference. I think that's awesome. If you've got kids, she's told your kids, daddy's at a men's conference. What a statement that makes. Don't you believe that? It's awesome. I bring you greetings also from the South. Anybody here from the South? I'm talking like the Gulf. Right on. All like two of you. Back after Katrina, the Lord brought a whole bunch of Calvary chapels together, and we did some relief work. Some of you guys might have been part of that. And Well, at the uh, end of about a year of helping out and feeding a community called uh, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, they, they wanted to continue worship services, so we started a church there. And Last weekend, I was there doing a one-year anniversary celebration for Calvary Chapel, Bay St. Louis. Isn't that awesome? So, yeah. So they said, y'all tell all y'all out there in New Mexico, they don't know where you're at. I had to tell them. New Mexico, that uh, they got a family out there, so keep them in prayer. Well, Father, we are absolutely blessed to be able to turn to your word and have you touch our hearts, believer, non-believer alike. Lord, you have an incredible plan for each and every one of us as we live down here on this place called earth and as we will live forever with you in a place called heaven. Through this process on earth, we need your help. We need the right perspective. We need the right heart. May you instill that in every one of us. This day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they gave me the topic of before the bell rings, know the rules. Know the rules. Anybody that has walked with the Lord for any you know, period of time knows that the Christian life is not staged in a rose garden or some kind of peaceful park setting. We live in a battlefield environment. It is not a friendly environment. It is a, an environment that is filled with many things that can harm you. And we must approach this environment, this world that we live in, you know, advisedly and not casually. Paul likened this whole Christian experience that we live out in this world to that of a war zone in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, no one in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him, speaking of Jesus, who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, which is kind of the theme here, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. To know the rules for that kind of a, an athletic setting that I have given to me, you know, to know the rules before the bell rings. Gives us a picture of a boxing ring. It's to know the rules of a one-on-one -on -one battle environment to know the setting and the surroundings, to know what can disqualify us, to know what can eliminate us, to know what can take you down, to know what can knock you out. Do not underestimate it. See it for what it is and what damage it can do and respect it accordingly. Years back, 
famous boxer by the name of Muhammad Ali. He was the self-acclaimed king of the ring. In 1971, there was a, a historic fight between he and a gentleman which we all know by the name of Joe Frazier. And in one of uh, Ali's colorful prize or pre-fight interviews, excuse me, he said, and I quote, there seems to be some confusion around this fight. This fight will clear up the confusion and prove that I am the king. And then he started his shadow boxing theatrics and said, I am the champ. I am the king. Some wish I was a postage stamp because that's the only way I could ever be licked. In famous Ali quote. But Ali lost that fight because he underestimated his enemy. He underestimated that, that environment and what could take place in that environment. Now, you and I as well, we live in this world, but, but how do we view this world? As Christians, even as, as non-Christians here, I live in, in Southern California, and we have a, a, a few-acre parcel over there that they call the happiest place on earth. Anybody know where that place is? You got a couple of Mickey Mouse ears around here? It's, it's Disneyland. It's the, it's the happiest place on earth. And people pay $95 a head for one-day visits to go to the happiest place on the earth. They market it as the happiest place on the earth. You pay $95 because you think, I'm going to be happy here. My kids are going to be happy here. Your kids, like, they walk up to the place and go, oh, like a Christian might react when they are in heaven. But you get inside the happiest place on earth. I was there just a couple of weeks ago with my kids. And, and I want you to know that, that there's some things that happen in Disneyland that, that prove to you it's not the happiest place on the earth. I saw vomit below, be, 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 behind one of the rides. Vomit. Somebody puked. They weren't happy when they puked. <laughs> they were happy when they drank the $75 Coke and the $25 you know, dollar bag of popcorn and the cotton candy, but after, when it's coming up, they weren't happy. I also had a real vivid experience. It was interesting. I was in line to, to get lunch and they were doing a background check on me and a credit report check on me and a financial report check on me. It's a lot of money at Disneyland. But, but as I was there, I, I heard this screech from a mom. You guys, you know, we have those, you know, our wives over our kids, they can, they can screech. There's a serious problem. And to my disbelief, a mother had let her two-year-old toddle over to a wishing well where for years now people have thrown money into the happiest place on the earth's wishing well and made a wish to Tinkerbell or someone and, 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 and wished for something. But in the bottom of that well was her two-year-old, and she freaked. So I'm a chaplain. I'm a chaplain. That doesn't mean nothing, by the way, but, but it means that you're exposed to really bad things sometimes. And I went into what I call chaplain mode. Wah! Ran towards that, that, that little lifeless body laying in that wishing well in the happiest place on the earth. And, and right when I got there, the mother grabbed this little, you know, little Joby was his name out, and he was blue, and he was not breathing, and he was freaking out. She began to freak out in the happiest place on earth. When she stood in line and paid $95 with her family over there, they probably spent, you know, they, they were Mexican, man. They had like 19 people in their family. So that was like a, you know, a big, a big cost. But, but, but I'm sure she wasn't thinking, you know, this is anything but the happiest day of our life and the happiest place on earth. 
Man, we jumped into mode and we, we helped this little boy and God brought little Joby back and life to him and, and it was just cool to see him all excited and she's crying and everything and I'm there and everybody backed off and there I was, I was sitting with her. And she looked at me and she goes, why are you here? I said, I don't know, man, but let's just relax. He's okay. You know, and all these weird people are going to come pretty soon, so just relax. And I said, you never thought this would happen today in Disneyland, did you? And she said, no. And I said, but go home tonight and talk to God and ask him why. God's got a plan for little Job. He's going to keep him around. But, you know, as we look at this world, what is our perspective? We are, we are in this 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 competitive arena called the world as Christians. And one thing I'd like to bring to your attention is, is that we as Christians, we do not stand alone in this world. Man, I couldn't imagine being a boxer. I'm a team sport guy. You know why I like playing team sports? Because when I start doing bad, I pass the ball to the guy that's doing good. <laughs> but man, to get in this one-on-one match in an arena with that guy that's been training and, and, and working out and preparing physically, emotionally, and mentally to do what? To kill me. To take me out. I don't know if I want to stand alone in that ring. I'd be like, hey, can I bring a few of my homies in the ring on this one? <laughs> to know the rules. I lived some time in, in Hawaii. You know, I, 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 never, I never fought growing up. I'm not a fighter, you know. But... You know, in a surf world that I was part of, I surfed, the, you know, the big waves and all that. And with that brought a lot of competition and a lot of, you know, well, I wasn't real accepted in Hawaii, as, as they say. The locals are, and they like their rule. And, and so I had a little skirmish one day. And it was okay. It was in the water. And I saw this guy was like, he was big. He was, they called him wideback for a reason. And I upset wideback. And, 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 and that day we were walking down the highway, and there he was. Him and his shadow over the city, you see. And he came up to me, and he's all, hey, Howley, I remember. And he started talking pigeon, you know. And I, I hadn't been there long enough to know my pigeon, you know. So I'm like, you know, shaka, you know. And, and that's all I know, you know. And anyway, I had a guy with me by the name of Sumo. And I didn't know where Sumo was. He had walked into a restaurant, and, and, and now I had walked out. And Sumo spends a long time in restaurants, so I, I didn't know if he was with me. But as I was walking, I ran into this guy named Whiteback, and, and he was really coming at me. It was a serious thing. I've never seen this look before, but he wanted to take me out. And all of a sudden, as I started walking up to him, I remembered I, you know, I had some self-defense classes when I was younger. And I remember my instructor, he spoke to my head right then. You, know, you stand your ground, and you just look at him like you could take him. And, and this guy was a lot bigger than me. I remember going, all right, man, here we go. And all of a sudden, he, he started backing down. And then I started getting a little, little, little confident. <laughs> you better know what you're talking about here, man. You know, that kind of thing, you know. And then I, and I kind of look around what you do when that's going down. You know, I look around, and, and Sumo was standing right behind me. <laughs> He's like a planet, you know. And, and I realized I had someone standing with me. You know, Paul, he says in Galatians 2, verse 20, after walking with Jesus for a while, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live as a Christian, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A believer, as we stand for 
or stand in this world. We stand for Jesus. He stands with us. We do not stand alone. In Psalm 27, verse 1, David said, The Lord is my strength. In whom then shall I be afraid? In Habakkuk, he said, The Lord is my strength. He's the one that's going to make my feet like a deer, swift and fast. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30 or verse 29, it starts off. It says, God gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And they'll mount up with wings like eagles. And they, they'll run and not be weary. And they'll walk and they will not faint. I love that story in Nehemiah about God just sending him to build the, the walls, this these, these stones have been laying around for about a, a hundred years, but he brings this young man there and he, he just gives him vision. He gives him favor. And before long, the work is done in such a, a supernatural way on such a supernatural timetable that, that even the enemies realized that, that, that God was with him. And in, in chapter 8, as they begin to talk about this dedication and, and, and bringing back the word to the, 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 the city of Jerusalem again, he simply says that one thing, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In Judges chapter 7, you guys remember Gideon? He started out as a faint-hearted kind of guy that felt, I could never really advance God's work. I could never be used. And, and before long, he'd be raised up as a judge. He'd be raised up as a, as a military overseer as well. And, and, and one day he woke up. It's one of those days that you wake up and you're surrounded by something that's just so much bigger than you. <laughs> you just kind of go, I'm done. And his problem was, well, it was with these, these guys called the Midianites. And there was only about 32,000 of them that wanted to, to kill Gideon and the army that he represented. God, of course, well, there was 32,000 Israelites. There was 132,000 Midianites, excuse me. But those numbers were staggering. You might say, you know, okay, I, I, I'll take one of you guys on. All right, come on, let's go. I'll take my chances with one of you. Ten of you. I'm not going to get up for that fight. By the time God was done in that story, he had, he had reduced the numbers of, of Gideon's army to where the odds were 450 to 1. God even said, hey, Gideon, stand up before your army. There's, there's you know, these large 135,000 soldiers that want to kill you guys today. Go to your 32,000 and tell any of them if they're nervous, if they're worried about their home, if they're faint-hearted, that, that, that they can go home. 10,000 of them went, that's me, and they went home. Now the numbers drop. And then he goes through a series of stripping down Gideon's army for one purpose. And it says in Judges there, that the Lord would basically say this, Arise, in verse 9, Go against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Go and fight. One with God is always the majority. Fight with me. You fight from victory, not for victory, when you're on God's side. Amen? And so Gideon went, and of course they found victory. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58, Paul says, Thanks to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work 
of the Lord. And then lastly, 1 John verse 5 or verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, when we stand for battle in this, this ring called the world, we do not stand alone. We stand in Christ. We stand in His strength, in the power of His might. Like Paul, Christ lives within me. Victory is accomplished by putting our faith in Him alone. But as we stand with Jesus Christ in this battle-filled environment called the world, we stand opposed. For the believer, there should be three things that, that, that we see as our opponent. For you note-takers, number one, Satan. Number two is our flesh. And number three is the world. And if you would, turn your Bibles over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. And I think this is one of the, the classic passages that, that, that we see God giving us some rules in His Word regarding our opponent. In verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I think this is one of the strongest statements in the New Testament of how God views the world. It's one of the strongest statements that God makes for us, showing us how we should view the world how we should view our opponent. And he says simply this, do not love it. Do you realize there is a, a, a love that God hates? Hmm. It's this love right here. A few weeks ago, I was getting ready for this study and I was looking at this one website that had famous quotes for boxers. That would be interesting. But one article was on there and, and it was about a boxing rink, a very famous one, called Madison Square Gardens that they had retired this year. And all of these famous boxers had come to commemorate the event. And they all were, you know, interviewed and all their quotes and all of their, you know, historical, uh, you know, expressions and, and, and statements about, you know, Madison Square Gardens and their bouts, of course, they, they chronicled. And out of all of those things, I was reading through it, it was interesting how they viewed the ring and how they viewed their opponents, but out of all of the things that were said, there was one quote that, that just stood out, and that was this. It was a man who said, those who found victory in this ring are those who enter this ring with bodies fit to win, with minds set on the title, and with hearts that hate their opponent. Joe Frazier said, in that ring, I would step in, and I would want to hit my opponent, step away, hit my opponent, step away, watch him hurt, but before it was over, I wanted his heart. What a graphic picture of Satan's goal towards the believer living in this world. 
John wrote this epistle at a very interesting time. John, after he had walked with the Lord for over 60 years, so as John looks at this world, he, he's in his 80s now. He has seen much of the world that, 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 that he's talking about here. He has seen it as a Jew before he ever met Jesus Christ. He has seen it in those years following the calling as he walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years as a disciple. He has seen it as a, a church leader, as a church planter. He has seen the world with, with people now in the Roman world beginning to accept Christ. He's seeing the world before the church. He's seeing the world with the church. And the church has just been in existence for a few years. And so when he looks at the rink for the sake of an illustration, he sees the church in the rink. He, he sees his opponent in the rink as well. And he sees how the opponent views him because he is that church in the ring. At this time in Roman history, it wasn't popular to be a Christian. You wouldn't advertise it on a bumper sticker, nothing on your chariot that would give away the fact that you're a Christian. No radio programs. It, was, it wasn't popular because you were, you were at that point of being persecuted. They were hunting you down. Caesar Nero was just beginning to, to, to incarcerate Christians in, in large masses and, and use them for sport in his coliseums and the, the arenas over there that, that they would take the Christians and, and, and hold them. And then, you know, you'd be in one holding tank and next to you would be over here a bunch of wild animals that they would, some of them they would kill, they would take their fresh skin, they would skin them, and they would sew it on your back and they'd put you out in the middle of the arena and then let the other animals loose to attack you. It would have been common to have you as a Christian hunted down to be placed into one of his holding you know, areas at one of his palaces to, to be used as, as a human torch to light up one of his gardens. John lived at a time when he looked at the world, where Christians could look at the world, and it was very clear that their opponent hated them. But interestingly enough, at a time in an era where the church itself should have looked at their world like we look at our world and, and should have come to the right conclusion. I think the last thing that the early church should have heard from God, from one of their leaders, would have been that warning, don't, 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 don't love this place. Don't fall in love with this place. Don't love your opponent. This is not a, 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 a rose garden or a peaceful park setting that you should fall in love with. This is not Disneyland. This is not a place where you should find gratification and fulfillment and contentment. This should not be a place that, that should grab a hold of you affectionately. You should not form bonds with this place. This is an opponent that is driven by the prince and the power of the air, Satan himself, the opponent who seeks to destroy the liar, the deceiver, Satan himself. But don't love it? Think back to Genesis chapter 6. 
God had his view of the world in Noah's days. You know, you, you go through the first five chapters, you get to chapter six, you go, wow, it's amazing. You know, chapter one, man was God's crowning act. And everything that he created, he said he was well pleased. By the time you get to chapter six, his crowning act, he's looking at mankind, humankind, and he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Noah's culture was so vile and so despicable that God would say in the next verse that he was even sorry and so sorry that he would destroy man whom he had created from the earth. God looks at this world and he sees the potential of what this world can do to his kids. And he says, don't love it. I've seen it in the past. I know where it leads. I know what happens to your heart when you begin to to give your heart, a heart that I purchased, a heart that I indwell, a heart that, that I gave my very son for. I, I, a heart that, I, that, that, that one day you were so affectionate towards me, you gave it to me. I'm a jealous God. I see what happens when a generation begins to give their heart to this world. Don't love it. All the immorality and the, the poverty, the starvation, the crime, the disease, and all of the governmental corruption and the wars that we see today are, are all a result of men trying to live a life apart from God. We Americans are, are much like the European culture. We used to say in our, 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 our American Christian posture about 10 years ago, well, at least we're not like, like Europe, you see, in their post-Christian era. All of the cathedrals that were built in the 1700s to, to, that marked the success of Protestantism, all of those cathedrals that spot it, at least we're not like those because they're empty now. Well, 10 years later, about 45% of those cathedrals are now Muslim mosques. And we now, as America, are labeled a post-Christian era. And as a result, in this ring this ring where we are to be placed in this battlefield environment called the world as salt and light. We are to be winning the battle and the the battle of influence. We see Protestantism. We see evangelical movements all over this beautiful country called America being pushed aside to ecumenicalism, secularism, hedonism, and materialism. We have become a culture, sadly, like those in Isaiah's days where they began to call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We live in a world today, even in our American culture, where the people of God, you know, Christians are being labeled as as irrelevant, as bigots, as intolerant. The Word of God is is pictured by the the heathens today as something that, well, they've demonized it. And by the church, sadly, not in this church, it's obvious, but in the church, in the broader sense for America, it's been marginalized. 
Recently, I read a book by a man by the name of Stephen Prethero on uh, the topic of religious literate, uh, literacy. And he takes a good, hard look at, a, at, at American Christianity, and he says that, you know, out of all of the, the, the Western regions, American, you know, their belief in, in, in the Word of God out of all of the Western culture societies, they rank up there at the top. They're the country that says we're Christians louder than anyone else. We have the Bible belt. We are a country that's built on biblical principles. But he took a few years and he did his homework and he did some interviewing throughout America and he just published this and I read the raw copy and he says this, well, the United States is the most religious nation in the developed worlds, yet we are now the most biblically ignorant people in the Western world. Fewer than half of us can identify Genesis as the first book of the Bible. Only one-third of us know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Nearly two-thirds of Americans endorse the simultaneous teaching of creationism with the evolution teaching in public schools. How can Christians know what creationism means or make an informed decision about whether it belongs in a classroom if we don't even know where the book of Genesis is? And then he goes on to humorously say, no doubt that same proportion of Americans would say that Thomas Edison is the one that said, let there be light. (laughs) Approximately 75% of adults believe the Bible teaches that God helps those that help themselves. More than 10% think that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. (laughs) And he goes on and on. Hosea 4.6, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, John gives a few different reasons why Christians should not love the world. First, he tells us not to love it because of what it is. Now, the New Testament word for world is used in, in three different ways. It can refer to the, the physical sphere that you and I call, of course, the earth. You guys all know about that. You all live on that. It can also refer to the, the human world of mankind. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He wasn't talking about the planet. Oh, God loved this place so much that he sent me. No, he didn't send him for the trees and for the ocean and all of that. He sent his son for humankind, the world used in that tense. In John chapter 10, both of the ideas of the, the world are presented there when he, Jesus, was in the world. And the world, the earth there, was made by him and the world, mankind, yet knew him not. The warning we have, love not the world, is not about, you know, the physical sphere. I think we can enjoy the world that, that, that we have here. It's not about nature. And it's not a warning to not love men. Because we are told as a church to love one another. It's the great commandment that Jesus gives us. And we're told to love our enemies. So what warning do we have here? What is God talking about where he's saying, you know, don't love this place? Well, it's the third use of the the word world in the New Testament, and it refers to the invisible spiritual system that is opposed to God and, and to Christ. We use the word world in, in a, a very unique way, 
We might be watching the news and, and someone will come on and say, and now from the world of science, and they'll give a report. Now from the world of politics, and they'll give a report. And this, you know, spiritual system that is opposed to God is also a system with people, with purposes, with an agenda. They wake up every day in and, and the world of science and they all have a common interest, they all have common goals. And like that system, there is this other system that also has an organized group of people that, is, that have you know, an organized plan. 1 John here, too, in verse 16, it says, This world that he's talking about is not of the Father. It's an organized system that is run by demonic hordes. It's heated up by Satan himself. In Ephesians chapter 6, he is the, the prince of the power of the air, as we said earlier. Ephesians chapter 2, and his goal with this system is to influence people and groups and governments, to influence them to be opposed to God, to doubt God, to reject God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, We know that we are of God, and the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Just as we wake up as believers, now grafted into the kingdom of God, and we are under the, the sway, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, His governorship, the, the plan of God, the purpose of God, so too this world, this system, this satanic, demonic system, is out there to influence people. To get up each day and to be under his influence and to achieve his goals and to achieve his purposes. Ephesians 2, it gives us a powerful description of those who make up this lost world. In verse 1, it says, They are dead in trespasses and sins. Their life is characterized by walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince and the power of the air, Satan, that spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, fulfilling the desires and the lust of their flesh. And then the conclusion is there in verse 3 as well, that they are children of wrath. What does that mean? They are subject, subject to the judgment of God. Paul in Ephesians 4 gives more insight into that very world where he says they have their understanding darkened, their hearts are hardened, they are alienated from the life of God. Verse 19, who being past feeling, they give themselves over to all kinds of evil, sinful practices. What a sad, withering description of a lost world who is living life apart from God. Darkness, hardness, numbness, reckless living, and deadness. As Christians, we are part of the physical world. We are part of the, the human world. We can enjoy all of that, but it ends there. We are not part of the spiritual organization that is opposed to God. We are no longer part of that world. Colossians 1 verse 13 says in the Living Bible Translation, He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. We no longer walk according to the course of this world. In John's Gospel again in chapter 15, Jesus says, Now, if you were of this world, speaking of that satanic system, the world would love you. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world we are describing then is, is not a natural habitat for believers. Philippians 3 verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. 
and all the resources for living a successful Christian life in this habitat, this battlefield called the world, are given to us from our Father above. I don't know how many of you remember uh, when you were a kid, way back there was a television show called Diver Dan. Any Diver Danites here? No one watched Diver Dan. Oh, boy. Well, I'm 27, so, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but... But Diver Dan was this one. He just had my attention. You know, I'm a surfer. I love the water. I mean, Diver Dan to come on. I'm like five years old. Diver Dan, you know. And Diver Dan was one of those divers that went down to the bottom of the ocean in an old diver's suit. And he had the big globe kind of helmet. You know, he'd talk through it with an echo kind of voice. And he'd tell you about the fish and everything. And he had this, he had this lifeline that went up to this boat. And they, they kept him filled up with oxygen. And I used to remember, man, I love Diver Dan. I used to always freak out what happens if something happens to Diver Dan's lifeline, it's not going to be good. You see, Diver Dan, is, he's down here as a diver in the, the bottom of the ocean and in an, in an environment that, that he could live in. But if the elements that he lived in got inside of Diver Dan, being that of water, Diver Dan was doomed. It's the same with you and I. It's exactly the same with you and I. This is not our natural habitat any longer. We have been created, brand new nature. Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We still live in this world, but we're no longer of this world. And we too have to keep the elements of this habitation outside of us, or we too are doomed. And we too, like a diver Dan, need that lifeline Peter says that all things that are given for us to live a life of godliness have been given to us by the Father above. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we shouldn't love the world for what it is, and we shouldn't love the world for what it can do to us. But you think about this heart, you guys. I can't be duplistic. If I love God, I love God. You guys that are married, you love your wife. The relationship works. It grows and it develops if you stay single in that love towards your wife. To come home to your wife and say, oh honey, I love you so much, but there's just this, uh, I know you won't get upset, there's just another woman. It's not going to work. John says, don't do that. Wesley said, anything that cools my love for Christ is of the world. Loving the world will also weaken my response to the will of God. In verse 17, John speaks of those who love God, and he says, there are those that he who does the will of God. As I love God, I show him that by my obedience. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, you know, that those who love him will, will keep his commandments. In John's gospel, in chapter 5, and I'll, I'll tie things up, we've got to get going here, but in chapter 5, it's an interesting transition for Jesus. He's performed some miracles, done a lot of, you know, radical things, visible evidences is everywhere around him that that demonstrates deity. There's a man he just healed 
that had been lame for 38 years. He's now walking. And the religious leaders are very upset with Jesus. Remember again, Jesus is living in this same world that you and I are living in. That's opposed to God. He, he, is, he is living in this world that, that, that could be attractive to him, that could be compelling to him. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet remained without sin. He didn't give in to those temptations. He was the perfect God-man, but there was that humanity that was able to be tempted. And as he lived in this world, he came and, 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 and he was doing nothing but the will of the Father. And as he was doing the will of the Father... He compassionately heals this man at the pool of Bethesda. The man's now walking. And then these religious leaders that, that, that picture to us what religion, how religion really does respond and see God and his plan. But these religious leaders come and they say, who healed you? He goes, there's so many people around at the pool of Bethesda, I can't remember. He's this tall, he had this color of hair, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever he did. They didn't know who he was. The next day, Jesus found them at the temple. And had some conversation with him. And he goes, ooh, there's a guy that healed me. And he ran and he told the religious leaders, I now know who he is. And he, he pointed Jesus out. And they came to Jesus, these religious leaders. And this is what they said. You violated the Sabbath law. Now, he obviously didn't. He violated their interpretation of the Sabbath law because they said you couldn't do any kind of work and doing a miracle, I guess, they saw his work on the Sabbath. So in that right, he violated their interpretation of the Sabbath law. As an end result, if I could just paraphrase this, it's just, we're not going to be too hard on you, Jesus. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill you because you healed this guy on the Sabbath. Oh, okay. And then... The next part of the conversation, they come to Jesus and they say, and there's another problem we have. You run around here telling everybody you're God. You're saying you're equal with God. Jesus does not back down from their threats. He becomes more bold and more clear, and he stands up in the opposition of a very evil, perverse opponent. How does he do that? I haven't had anybody tell me they're going to kill me, and he actually had the ability right in front of me to do it. But I don't know how I'd respond. He goes into this, this dialogue. It's a credible dialogue in John chapter 5. But he goes into this dialogue, and, and, and one of the things he says is he goes, guys, you might not understand this, but in verse 20 he says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. I read that over and over, and I'm like, wow. He goes, I ain't backing down. I am not... I'm not going to move one inch. Fact is, I'm going to press on, and I'm going to claim more deity. And he did. He showed how he was equal to God in honor, equal to God in judge, equal to God in the matters of eternity, equal to, to God in, 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 in all these respects. He stood up to them, and he goes, and, and, and let me tell you why I'm so confident and bold standing before you. Because of the Father's love for me, and my love for the Father is the idea, the bond of love. The love that he had for the Father and the love that he experienced from the Father gave him such ability to stand and to finish well. The word that he used was an interesting word in the Greek. It's the phileo. It's the deep feelings of warmth and affection that that. A, a father would feel toward their son. 
It's intact. It's, it's over the top. One scholar, if I could just close with this quote, he said this. He says, this is given, this phileo in, a, in the, pre, you know, the present tense verb, and it indicates, and can I read this? It, in it in indicates an eternally uninterrupted and all-knowing love that leaves no room for ignorance, making it impossible for Jesus to have been unaware of the Father's love. I love my wife. I've been married for 20 years. I love her. I really do. She loves me. We have a great relationship. She'll listen to this tape. I wouldn't say it wasn't true. We love each other. And that love that I have for her is a very stabilizing factor. It's a motivating factor. And it's real. And because of our love, as we grow, we become more intimate. We become more transparent, we become more sincere. I know what her desire is for me. She knows what my desire is for her. And as we live in this world, guys, listen, in order to stand up and and to face this opponent, the one rule that you've got to know is don't love anything else more than God. Love Him. Love Him. Learn how to love him. Develop that, that love for him. Understand his love for, for you. Foster that. Spend time with him. It was a strong enough fact for Jesus. It should be a strong enough fact for us. Amen?